You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything, conversations with Richard Rohr exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We're your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst shopping for a show on Netflix, snuggling with toddlers, and the shifting state of our world. This is the 11th of 12 weekly episodes. We're jumping ahead for this episode, and we'll be discussing the appendixes of the Universal Christ. In this conversation, we lay out the two frameworks that Richard includes at the end of his book, the four worldviews, and his pattern of transformation. One more thing before we get started. We want to hear from you in two different ways. The first invite is for your participation in a podcast listener survey. We want to know what you think is working so far or what we could do better. And the second invitation is for those of you that have a burning question related to the themes of the Universal Christ. Please send them our way. After this season is over, we'll gather as many listener questions as we can and bring them into conversation with Richard and then share his responses with all of you. To participate in the survey or to submit a question, head over to cac.org podcast and follow the instructions. We want to thank you for all your time listening to this series. It is you, the listeners, that help spread this message around the world. Thank you. Richard, at the end of your book, you lay out two appendixes that offer us some really helpful tools to understand how to frame reality or how we tend to frame reality, um, which you've titled, the first one is called Four Common Worldviews, and the second one is The Pattern of Spiritual Transformation. And I really appreciate that from the start, you lay out that these are tools, right? Like yes, no yes. no one perspective no, or no. frame is going to say it all, but I still found them really helpful. Good. Um, and so starting with the, the first one, the four common worldviews, would you give us an overview, overview of huh? what each of these are? All right. Now, remember your worldview is not usually consciously formulated. It's the set of assumptions, usually unquestioned, that you look out at life from. (laughs) You don't look at it, you look out from it. The, The very common one that recurs in many different forms in all of history is what I call the spiritual worldview. Now, just as you'd hear it, everybody say, well, that's what we should be, uh, spiritual people. But actually, it, it was given a term in Christianity that was usually called a heresy, and the term was Gnosticism. Now, it's been given many different titles throughout the centuries, but the basis of it is that you emphasize spirit, ideas, concept, mind, more than anything physical, material, or touchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, and I don't use New Age in a negative way, don't hear it that way, but a lot of the New Age is that way. Like, your mind creates reality. And there's truth to that. But when it becomes the whole truth, that everything is just 
the inner spiritual world and all of this is not to be taken seriously. Of course, I'm convinced that much of Christianity was in fact Gnostic. <laughs> it, you know, all that mattered was the soul. We used to save souls. We didn't save people or history, souls. So the best way to get away with being a heretic is to condemn it. And then you can get away with it because no one notices, well, you're the same thing. So <laughs> I, I know this isn't true of all of Christianity, but I'd say large portions of it have been very spiritual worldview. All that matters is spirit. That's why we could ignore the planet, ignore racism and all the rest. The second worldview that actually is the rarest in all of history and really only began, I guess in the last three, four centuries, would be materialism. That the only thing real is this, the physical. Now, most people would not assent to it philosophically, but practically, practically, I would say most Americans are materialists. Uh -huh. The only real thing is what you can shove around, what you can earn, what you can get. Uh, now we get into sentimental notions of spirit, like on Valentine's Day today, you know, but it's it's... Not really spirit, yeah, it's, it's usually sentiment, substituting for spirit. So um, dialectical materialism, you know, uh, that would have been unthinkable in most of history. Although there were several Greek philosophers that certainly were already playing with it. Uh, then the third is probably the most common confusion. I don't know if it's the best word. I struggled with this. Did I call it the priestly worldview in yeah. here? Priestly, okay. Um, which believes that there is matter and there is spirit. And the job of the church, we think we're real fervent in doing this, is to keep reminding everybody that there's spirit. <laughs> yeah, listen to most sermons. They're the priestly worldview. God is involved in this. But that you, the very person who will say this is a, a control freak. Do you understand? So they're really materialists, but they think that if they you keep using God talk, uh, this is going to be our job to convince people that God is sort of involved. <laughs> and that's all they believe. We call it the God of the gaps. And a priest's or a minister's sermons would remind God is part of the deal. You got it? Yes, Father, God is part of the deal. But it's still, most of the time, a materialist worldview mm. or a highly anthropocentric, all that really matters are human beings. Mm. So that, in my opinion, is the most common substitute for the real gospel. Help people to put matter and spirit together. And it's transactional, too. Very transactional, yeah. yeah. Yes. What I believe is the authentic gospel is the incarnational worldview that dares to believe, now most Christians weren't told this, that matter and spirit were never separate. It's not our job to put them back together, but to recognize and honor and draw upon the realization they are one and have always been one. So that's why my uh, seminary prof said, 
and it seems scandalous, but that Christianity was more influenced by Plato than by Jesus. Because Jesus is a living exemplar of incarnationalism. That's his role, in fact, you know. Plato does admit there's matter and spirit, but they're in contention with one another. And the battle is never really resolved. Huh? Uh, they're, they're fighting one another, uh, which is a dualistic worldview. It honors spirit, but it again lays the foundation for the priestly worldview. Or, okay, there is matter, there is spirit. If we work real hard and pray over things and sprinkle them with holy water and, and say a mass there, <laughs> they will be spiritual, you see. Mm. So I love to tell people when I have mass here on Sunday, the sweet Mexican people come with their rosaries. Father, bless my rosary. So I always have to give my little sermonette and say, you do know it's already blessed. Now, all I'm doing is reminding you by this ritual of blessing that it is blessed. Mm -hmm. Yes, Father, go ahead. Would you bless it, please? <laughs> <laughs> do it anyway, though. <laughs> do it anyway. <laughs> so I do my priestcraft and I do my... It's okay. If it takes a ritual to remind us then that rituals are good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what usually happens is the ritual becomes the substitute for the recognition. Wow, yeah. Yeah, like when they say, yes, Father, they didn't hear what I said. It, you know, it's already blessed. It's already holy. But to help you know that, I'm going to touch it, I'm going to sprinkle holy water on it, or I'm going to bless it. Okay, Father, please do that. <laughs> uh, it's not their fault. It's... We naturally live in a dualistic world where all of it is matter and we have to cram spirit into it, mm. you know, by our techniques and our methods and our blessings. So if you can get just that little first appendix yeah. Yeah. somewhat clarified, it prepares you for the whole book. Yeah. In fact, I think in my first edition of this, I had that as the second chapter mm. or the mm. first chapter. Mm. But they recommended this, and I, I think it was good. What you're bringing up in that example of the rosary is something that I'm kind of fascinated by in that we we want to just project. We just want to project yeah. that um, seeing outside of ourselves. In other words, I need you as a priest to bless this for me because I, can, I, can, I can't I can't accept. Imagine. Right. That's very compassionately yeah. said. I, that's exactly what I think. And God understands that. Yeah. And I understand that. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Well, this is, um, you know, I, I want to spend just a little bit of time with this Glad. incarnational worldview since ironically, I think as Christians, we haven't really grasped this as the gift no, of our tradition no, at all. No. Uh, you have this line where you say, this view relies more on awakening than joining, mm -hmm. more on seeing than obeying, more on growth in consciousness and love than on clergy, experts, modality, scriptures, or rituals. The code I am using in this entire book for this worldview is Christ. Mm. And right at the start of that line, I see all the ways we don't actually want to live out this worldview because we, we do want to join and obey and have an authority figure tell yeah. us yeah. what to do. And um, so I guess my question is, how does, how does this incarnational worldview 
require us to actually have faith, not just in God, but in ourselves too. Oh, well put. That's where it should end up. That's why that Walcott poem was so, he's peeling his own image off the mirror and realizing, my God, they've always been one. God's seeing of me and my attempts to see God. Yeah, what do I say? I mean, you said it so well already. Uh, you know, I find myself in the question and answer sessions uh, with confer at conferences and groups so glad that I wrote the book Falling Upward, and I'll tell you why. Because again and again, and you're going to hear it now, you probably get tired of it, I come back to this distinction of what you need to get started and what you need to end up. And there are two different sets of rules. It really does answer so many pastoral questions. And I'd, I would say an early Christian needs Father to sprinkle holy water on it. There's nothing wrong with that. That's okay, you know. And, well, I'd still do it myself. If Pope Francis was here, I'd be the first one to still, Pope Francis, would you bless, would you bless my robes for me? <laughs> and he would say, Richard, you know what's Richard, you know, it's already blessed. Oh, damn it. Will you touch it? I want to say the Pope touched my rosary. That's just our incarnationalism. We want touch. Yeah. We want physicality, but it's the same thing he's saying to Mary Magna. We don't need the touch anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's everywhere. So, uh, yeah, just I think that's the best answer I can give. Mm -hmm. Don't deny people growing. Mm -hmm. And what's true at one stage is not true at another stage. And when you judge from your stage, which is what we're doing with most of history now, when does this transferring of judgments from one century to another century become counterproductive. Because mm. uh, I think when it becomes iconoclasm and anger and culture wars, you're assuring the pushback we saw, frankly, in the election, you know? That a whole set of America feels stupid, feels, you know, I can't call God he, well, that's all I've ever called God. Why do we need to humiliate a person who's still at that level of growth? That's why I taught Spiral Dynamics, or still teach it to the students, to help us honor earlier stages. And of course, the stages in history mirror the growth from an infant to a teenager to an adult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're in early adulthood in Western civilization. And what do early adults want to do? Throw out their youth and their teenage years. Pretend, yeah, pretend it didn't happen. Pretend it didn't happen, yeah. yeah. Instead of include and thereby transcend. Like yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's something you said just a moment ago that I wanted to follow up on uh, regarding the, the blessing. Um, mm -hmm. You unlocked for me that, the, I think it's from Paul, the priest of all believers. Oh, yes. Well, for me growing up, I thought, well, that means that anyone could become clergy mm -hmm. or priest. Mm -hmm. But the essence that I, I, I see as I've grown up is we all have that yes. uh, immediacy yes. with, with God. And it is the priesthood of all believers, but it's not a, a role to play. It's not a leadership role. That's it. It's an awareness that, that I can help people know that matter and spirit are one. Now, that's my language. Yeah. Uh, 
So I, you couldn't put it that way with the normal crowd. But you know, Jesus never calls himself a priest, not once. Right. If it wasn't for the letter to the Hebrews, the word wouldn't even be applied to him. But because of that, we started applying it. By the third century, the clergy, which in itself is hard to justify, took it to themselves. Thank God you Protestants rejected it. But then you created ministers in the same ilk. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because we do need leaders. But how can we create leaders who are simply functions within the body of Christ or charisms within the body of Christ instead of a higher class? Mm. That's what we call clericalism. When you, it's not any longer a leadership function, it's a class system. Mm -hmm. Now we Catholics are work at worse at that than you are by far, by far. But we still haven't gotten rid of it. You know? I feel like the incarnational worldview yes, go ahead. invites us to, go ahead. to yes. uh, get rid of that. I wanna read um, another quote from you on this and then ask you to it's unpack it. We'll see, here we go. We'll see. <laughs> Probably not, Richard. Probably not, third rate. <laughs> Uh, what is it? <laughs> You're right. The incarnational worldview grounds Christian holiness in objective and ontological behavior instead of just moral behavior. That's right. That's right. And it's a beautiful line, and there's some big words Thank in there that I want you to unpack. Uh, you know, I so often say, this is my foundational idea. It's all taken myself too seriously. But this is my foundational idea <laughs> because it's the gospel is that the basis for holiness is ontological. The problem, as you like to hear me say, is solved from the beginning. Original goodness, creation, spirituality. Any lesser teaching is not the gospel. It is not good news because it creates a competitive, comparative culture of egos trying to outdo one another in purity codes or merit badge systems or it just takes ever more sophisticated forms. So when I was able to talk at Merton's 50th death anniversary, I, I said what Merton did for many of us in his teaching of the true self, false self was restore an ontological basis for holiness. And I could see everybody went to their page and copied that down because that's a new phrase. In fact, two people told me at the dinner afterwards, we're going to have to reflect on ontological holiness. I said, oh, I'm so glad I said that because that helps a lot of people get it. What well, we're talking about at every level. Huh? And it, it does change everything with the way the gospel was meant to change everything and democratize human beings because the ontological holiness is equally granted to every act of creation. <laughs> and there's not more granted to Jews and not more granted to Catholics, not more granted to white people. Wow, it was meant to be a social revolution. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being tribalism instead of a social revolution. So thank you for letting me talk on that a little bit. It's, it's foundational. Uh, holiness is ontological, is inherent. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit. Use whatever word you want. But it's a hidden wholeness 
to use another phrase from Thomas Merton, mm-hmm. that it takes us our own life to recognize in ourselves and then in you too. Would I gratuitously accept in Richard? I have to gratuitously accept in Paul and in Bree. That's the deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ben, steeped in the, the four world views of Appendix 1, and wonder, Richard, if you could take us to the, the heart of Appendix 2 on the oh. pattern of spiritual transformation, which I know we've kind of um, danced around it in a we couple of ways, already. but just to give a, a, a forthright mm-hmm. overview right. for those listening what uh, <laughs> You've heard me do it. But when I do this for the students, I think a lot of us are visual learners. Mm-hmm. When we can geometrically, oh, oh, oh. So I made it as simple geometrically as I could. And I say to the students in the first week, picture three boxes. And they all start writing <laughs> three boxes. Mm-hmm. And this is good. That's what I want them to do. The first box let's call order. The second box, let's call disorder. The third box, let's call reorder. I believe after studying all the world religions that each in their own way, they have discovered that this is the deepest path of spiritual growing up. That you must go from order, that you recognize you largely created yourself, you were given it by your family and your culture and your religion, and it's good. It gives you great comfort. And, and uh, it tells you you're a part of a coherent universe. Life has meaning, and it's going somewhere. Maybe it's naively understood, but a seven-year-old can only understand things at a naive level. So God must have been very patient with growth. Uh, but the trouble is, at least in my church, we were satisfied with the Baltimore Catechism 7th, 1st grade level as mature understanding of that. And all you did was repeat the formula. And, uh, well, it maintained your sense of order. And that was good. But when you repeat the cliche too long, it's no longer order. It's rigidity. If it's self-centeredness, it's, it's control. You're not looking for truth. You're looking for control. To hold on to my first explanation of order I was given in Minnesota in 1970. You know, that's the only order, which any pedagogue would recognize. Well, you understood that with your 14-year-old mind. And that's a good start. Let me repeat that, a good start. In fact, it's the easiest start. People who don't start with a basic order have a much harder time growing up. And that is the world we're living in now. I create this somewhat artificial date, but it's approximately true. Somewhere around 1968, we moved from what we call modernism to postmodernism. Modernism was built on an assumed order. Order was relished, father knows best. I mean, it was, it was an answer for everything. And it gave you comfort 
false comfort, but it was never, and very happy. Um, when I was a 19 year old novice in 1961, I think all we did was laugh. <laughs> Just everything was fun. <laughs> we lived in this tight Catholic, Franciscan, joyous world where all that mattered was God. And we were going to be friars of God. And, you know, when you know what you're about, and you know where you're going, and, and there's a team with you, I think it's what a lot of people do with the military. Mm -hmm. It's their first experience of communitas. This must be real. Wherever you first experience communitas, authentic friendship, relationship, uh, th this imprints itself on the soul as truth. Why wouldn't it? Wow. Now, here's the folly of the cross, to use Paul's language. What will come into every life if they grow up, if they leave home, if they leave their homogeneous group, if they live even to their mid-30s, where I guess several of you are, um, something will happen which shows their perfectly described order, what Merton calls your private salvation project. Did I use that phrase in the book? I should have. It doesn't matter. I remember, yeah. Your private salvation project will show itself not to be true all the time. Mm -hmm. That's the most you can allow. Okay, there's some strange exceptions, but... You know, they, they, we should convert them <laughs> to get back in control, you know. So it's the, the big ones are those big six, death, suffering, sexuality, gender is always a huge one, where, well, it isn't always true. Many people never can get out of their first box. It is so comforting. To accept the, the tragic absurdity of the human situation, the exceptions to the rule, that it isn't always that way. Now, what I'm pleading for is include and transcend. I'm not saying it's never that way, but it's not always that way. Those people who can hold on to what was good about the first box, what was good about being a Baptist missionary girl in Spain, trying to convert us Catholics. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, there were some really good things about it. I mean, your love of Scripture to this day yeah. comes to your Baptist beginnings. Um, but it, this is most of the middle of life. I will say from 25 to 55 for sure is the step-by-step -step integrating of exception, disaster, tragedy, grief, death, nonsensicality, if that's a word. Uh, she isn't like us. It's the constant, as you move outward, the constant experience of otherness, otherness, other, damn it, other. That isn't the way we did it in Minnesota. That isn't the way we did it in Kansas. It must be wrong, which is the ego's first assumption. So it's, it's often, the to use the biblical New Testament phrase, it's called the forgiveness of sin. Now you've heard that word so often, it's been so spiritualized, but that's what you're doing. 
when you can learn the mystery of the forgiveness of what first looks like sin to you and is just exception. <laughs> it's not like you. It isn't intrinsically bad. You want to make it so by your projection. You want to make it dangerous, and it is to your culture. Uh, and I would say easily 40 to 50%, no more than that you include all plant, all continents, more than 50% of humanity never make that break. The only way they can do it comfortably is to stay in a homogeneous group and keep condemning and criticizing and excluding all who are not in that group. Now, I think that's what Jesus is fighting because that's where his Jewish culture was in the first century proclaiming their own superiority and, uh, and trying to tighten the, the, or circle the wagons around that group. They were a prophecy for what all of us do uh, if we will not go to the second level. Carol Gilligan even says, you, you must start with self-love, legitimate self-love, then you move to other love, that's the middle box, takes a lot of people time to get to other love. And the final goal is universal love. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. The third box, reorder, is universal love. Now, here's the important point. That there's no nonstop flight from the first box to the third box. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you must go through disorder, disaster, tragedy, absurdity, exceptions, the first gay person that enters your life, the first Mexican who doesn't know English, uh, whatever it might be, and you got to admit you're sort of irritated. Why don't they learn English? <laughs> you know, why isn't their sexuality like mine? It's all radical egocentricity, but you'll find some wonderful spiritual Bible quotes to justify your egocentricity. So those people stay in the first box forever. The longer you stay there, the sicker it gets. Mm -hmm. The more it's a disguise denial game. And so uh, by the end of life, these people tend to be cognitively rigid. They have you have to, because you have to deny so much of apparent reality. You have to, mm -hmm. you have to circle yourself in your small little group. Now let's balance that out so you don't think I'm against conservatism, per se. But what is even a bigger problem for us now, if we're honest, is the amount of people who are formed or born. You were probably born after 68, were you? Yes. See, he's one of them. Look at this terrible disaster he is. <laughs> People born after 68. Well, you were too. I was too, yeah. All three of you. Oh, but we won't, we won't mention, okay. <laughs> so, and it's not, well, you were born in a Minnesota homogeneous, faith-filled community. Right. So you got your order. Yep. And it sounds like maybe your family was a little more floating... Yeah, yeah. That's the norm after 68. So your family is not sick. They're not unusual. But it does make it harder 
to integrate disorder when you started with disorder. You follow the logic of that. There's no coherent meaning. Everybody's on his own. That's almost the last thing Merton says before he's electrocuted. You're all on your own now. That's what he's referring to. There's no co. He saw in 1968 itself the birth of postmodernism. Mm -hmm. So if modernism believed in order, postmodernism in immense overreaction after the two world wars and the Holocaust and the rediscovery of racism and sexism and homophobia and materialism and militarism, which is what the 60s were about, we just said, you know, damn it, there is no order. It's permanent incoherence. Everybody's on his own to create his own private order. Now, our philosophical word for that is postmodernism. My word for it is to remain imprisoned in the second box are trapped, trapped in the second box. You really have never been told about any universal meaning, any safety net of truth and goodness that tells you you have inherent dignity. Most people haven't heard the gospel in that sense. So these folks, it is harder to grow up as a postmodern uh, second box person where there's no solid ground on which to stand. You know, doesn't it strike you, I'm sure it has, since we're all white in this little circle, that most of the major mass murderers are always white people? Yeah. <laughs> they thought they had their order, and it's showing itself not to be at all true, and they just want to destroy what they perceive as the disorder to their, mm. their no ability to deal with disorder whatsoever. Of course, most of them were not given, but a very naive version of order. So this is what we're facing right now, the collapse. How do you collapse any further than the second box? It's already an inherent collapse. The only people who can tolerate it are those who have a first box to hold on to. That's us. I mean, yeah, I mean, at least, you know, that I came from a stable family, a religion that thought it was the best, a country that thought it was the best, a male gender that thought it was superior to you women. That just gave me all kind of validation, validation. Every mirror I looked in validated me and told me how wonderful I was. That is very helpful. But every one of those illusions have to be burst. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. And a lot of people are saying, I'm not going to let go of it. It's all I got. Mm -hmm. Is my male gender or my white skin or my so-called Christian religion, mm -hmm. which ironically usually isn't Christian at all. So that ability to put those two together in a harmonious whole is reorder. That's the third box. Our word for that is resurrection. So let's just give it theological word, words. Life, religion of Jesus, the passion and death of Jesus, right? The rejection all of his life by the powers that be of religion and state. Mm -hmm. Jesus faces disorder as soon as it becomes public. 
And I have to believe that in those 30 years, he was observing some of the Samaritans were more loving than the Jews. So he just used his common sense. He met Syrophoenician women who were more generous than his Jewish compatriots. And maybe that's why we don't hear anything about him till 30. Because that's what you should be facing when you go out into the world. You move from Minnesota and Michigan and say there's a bigger world than Michigan. (laughs) But a lot of people don't do that. I challenge you to find a single myth in history, including Buddha and Jesus themselves, where the the, uh, protagonist doesn't leave home. They always leave home and go on a journey, which means they get out of their prison. That everybody does it the way we do it in Kansas. So that's what I call the pattern of transformation. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Richard. Thanks, yeah, it's so, it's so applicable in mm. so many different ways. And it really is. What I was thinking about is um, even, you know, as many of us have grown up in maybe a certain form of order of Christianity. Certain form, yeah. Uh, many of us have gone through these experiences of disorder where we felt the limitations of the theological boxes we were being handed, the exclusionary nature that... W- it's almost like shoes that just didn't fit anymore. Mm, and good. so we took, you know, we take them off. And, um, and so going through this period of disorder that has for so many of us felt a little bit like wandering around in the desert. Okay. Yeah. I guess our I'm, loss of belief, yeah. it will feel like you're losing faith. Exactly. Yes. Cause it's like, well, I guess yes. I'm not that kind of Christian, I guess I'm not a Christian. and therefore I, maybe I'm not a Christian. And then you kind of are, are in this state or, um, desert landscape for often a long time it could be a decade it could be longer what i feel about this book is that you're giving us a reorder a a resurrection of christianity and providing um a new lens a new frame that is big enough it's cosmic um Mm -hmm. i hope so yeah thank you for seeing it that way that's certainly my desire. Yeah. yeah. And they, it's almost like they don't even know they're being taught that. They just find themselves in the reorder box and say, what happened? Yeah. I see this in the living school. Mm-hmm. How did I get here? But I know I'm here now. Mm-hmm. I can't go back to the, the clear box of order, and I can't remain in prison in disorder. There's the holding operation mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. The two arms of the cross which is resurrection. Mm. Mm. And on on a very uh, personal and kind of microscopic level, just seeing that in my own relationship to church, where, Mm. you know, once I entered disorder, I was like, I can't Can't be a part of this anymore. I know, it's so hard. And to be able to come back and say, well, it's not perfect. I can see it for what it is, but I don't have to have it be the end-all, be-all if it doesn't reflect, well, basically who I think God is. but there's a lot of freedom. I know I have a lot of other areas in my life where that is I haven't come back to the reorder. But this metaphor is so helpful for me because I think it, it it is not only the big pattern, but it also plays out in different levels of life. Thank you. God, do I agree. And you're speaking for so many people of your generation and even the, the generation ahead of you 
are mostly in the same entrapment. You know, when Martin Buber said, all real living is meeting, hmm. it might just sound like a clever phrase, but the way most people traverse this is by meeting a good person who isn't Christian or my denomination, by having as a friend a black person who you just love, by meeting a gay person who is not sick and perverse, all real living is meaning. If you have no gay friends, if you have no black friends, you'll pretty much remain in your prison. And, and one of the common prisons today is just whole groups reveling in disorder. Mm -hmm. Just four letter words, nonstop drinking, loud, nothing against all loud music, but <laughs> loud music that doesn't allow you to hear anything else. Um, that is what really concerns me about pop culture in America today. There's no one to tell them that there's anything other than disorder. Mm. And what's going to happen mm. when they face death? Oh my God, oh, it just makes you want to cry. Mm. So. You have this phrase that you say, we all come to wisdom at the major price of both of both our innocence and our control. Mm -hmm. And that's so piercing and, and so true. And as we um, wrap up this conversation, I'm curious, what is an experience uh, in your life this week of, you know... <laughs> Why do you the... always make it this week? Let <laughs> 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 me think. Go ahead, say of, it all. Of, you know, the, paying that price of your innocence and your control, uh, but still arriving at the resurrection, at the reorder, at the uh, Christ moment. Okay. As you know, I uh, since I had my heart attack, I got to go at least three times a week to do cardio, cardiac rehab and work out on these torture machines. That's all they were. <laughs> Pure torture. I hate every second of it. It's an act of faith to go. And having gone now for uh, 13 months, I guess it is, you know, I've gotten to know some of the other people who are there at the same time. And they're all old codgers at my place. We're not young, beautiful bodies like you would go. And which makes it much easier. No one's showing off their beautiful <laughs> body because none of us have a beautiful body. And it makes for uh, real safety, I think, for all of us. Um, but sure enough, I found my own ways to resent somebody. And uh, Elias, you know, who drives me there and takes me, helps me with some of the movements and so forth. He, um, well, this is going to, you probably won't be able to record this, but I'm going to say it. Uh, he met this one guy while he was working out named George, mm -hmm. an old guy. And Elias says to me, I found out George is a Republican. He loves Donald Trump. So I just... I look over at George on that machine and have nothing but disdain for him. <laughs> How could anybody vote for Donald Trump? How could anybody be a Republican? You know, just revealing my own prejudices. And uh, just this happened day before yesterday. Uh, Elias went over there and he's talking. While I'm doing my torturous workout, he's talking to George. And of course, my mom, well, what does he want to talk to him for? He, he won't have anything to say. And so as we're driving home, I say, I saw you were talking to George. Did you have a nice talk? 
He said, let me tell you about what he has gone through. And he told me the story of his life, you know, mm -hmm. just the way people talk shortly, you know, a lot of death, a lot of suffering, a lot of failure. So I said, why have I wasted a second projecting ill will toward George, you know, who I never knew. I just heard he was a Republican and he voted for Donald Trump. And it allowed me to, in my mind, resent him, mm -hmm. you see. And uh, I hope I see him. I'm going this afternoon. Uh, I don't know that we'll become best friends, but but I, I know I have no need to uh, even project inner dark energy on him. You know, I've got a little sign by my door at my office. It's from one, one of the early Greek poets. Just know that every human being is carrying a secret and heavy burden. Mm every human being is carrying a secret and heavy burden wow <laughs> if we could just believe that every day yeah. our need to hate anybody would be taken away mm -hmm. and i think the crucified jesus is saying that from the cross i know you're all carrying a secret heavy burden and all i can promise you is your suffering is the suffering of god mm. That's my only answer. Wow, that's good. Yeah. If that's not redemption, I don't know what redemption is. But do you see now the cross as an act of solidarity? Divine, absolute solidarity with the human situation instead of an atonement theory, mm -hmm. paying a price. Mm -hmm. yeah. One thing I love about that quote too is also the acceptance within myself that it's okay that I'm carrying something heavy mm -hmm. and that I don't need to remove that before I'm yes. okay with okay. God. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to learn about these ideas in more depth, check out the Universal Christ Resource Collection at universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. 
Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.